You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. We believe that the Bible is the way that God speaks or communicates with us. And so, as a Christian, reading the Bible is really important as it is how we can learn more about who God is, what he's done for us, what he continues to do now, and his promises for the future as well. Today, we'll be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 23, verses 1 to 28. Please read along with me, and the words will also be displayed on the screen. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it. But don't do what they do, because they don't practice what they teach. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders. But they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. They do everything to be seen by others. They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love the place of honour at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi by people. But you are not to be called rabbi because you have one teacher and you are all brothers and sisters. Do not call anyone on earth your father because you have one Father who is in heaven. You are not to be called instructors either, because you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you don't go in, and you don't allow those entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much of a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever takes an oath by the temple, it means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gold of the temple is bound by his oath. Blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? Also, whoever takes an oath by the altar, it means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gift that is on it is bound by his oath. Blind people, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Therefore, the one who takes an oath by the altar takes an oath by it and by everything on it. The one who takes an oath by the temple takes an oath by it and by him who dwells in it. And the one who takes an oath by heaven takes an oath by God's throne and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but gulp down a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Well, it's a great privilege to be here this morning and to continue in what I think is a wonderful series, If I Could Ask God. And if you're new and exploring church and wonder, are questions really allowed in this sort of space? Am I allowed to text in my questions for the Q&A? Absolutely. The truth always invites questioning. And what I love about this series is that it's focused on bringing to attention some of the questions that characters, even in the Christian story, so often ask, as the Bible is full of these raw, honest questions that people have as they're trying to make sense of the Christian story. The truth is God is not afraid of our questions. And so today we're diving into this question, why are Christians so bad? Now there is no downplaying the reality that a dark shadow hangs over the church. Within our own culture, whatever moral gravitas that the church once possessed, it has been hollowed out by Christians behaving badly. Here on our home soil, the Faith and Belief Report back in 2017 by the McCrindle Research Foundation revealed that when it comes to Christians, uh, Christianity being taken seriously by Aussies, that the biggest barrier to Christianity turned out to be Christians. They were considered to be judgmental, hypocritical, even greedy. And whilst many Aussies might be warm to some of the Christians that they personally know, describing them as loving and caring, maybe that's what you think of the person who brought you along here today, Still, as a whole, Christians are often described with these terms. But this problem runs deeper, actually, than just a few Christians behaving badly. But the truth is, the church has a closet full of skeletons. One of the key arguments employed by the new atheists of the early noughties, right up to about a decade ago, was to essentially argue that religion poisons everything. And irrespective of what you think of the quality of their historical inquiry, the truth is they powerfully leverage these dark and real events from our history. Things like the Crusades or colonial slavery, the European wars of religion or the Catholic Inquisitions to make their case. The net effect of this litany of sacred crimes was that for many here in Australia, even the word church now evokes a profoundly shadowy institution that is hell-bent on self-promotion and self-preservation, even if it has to trample on the blood of innocence to do so. And tragically, well, I, I wish I could just deny these claims and draw somewhat of a wedge between the church and these evils. Far too often, the new atheists turned out to be right. 
In preparation for today's message, I re-watched the film Spotlight. The plot of this story traces the true story of a four-person investigative team with the Boston Globe in the early 2000s. And their purview was to investigate a few abusive priests in the local Catholic diocese. Now, Boston is the American heart of Catholicism. It boasts the highest percentage of Catholic population anywhere in the country, which meant sadly when it came to the investigation, Spotlight's investigative team felt that they were attacked even by some of their closest friends who thought that they were raising some unjust war against the church and so were impeded in their research on multiple fronts. But what these investigative journalists uncovered, eventually what they unearthed, it was stomach-churning that these priests weren't just a few bad apples as they did evil things to children. They actually represented a sizable portion of the priesthood, roughly 6% of all men of the Catholic cloth. And these predators were simply moved from one parish to another when accusations were made with full knowledge of the cardinal and the Catholic hierarchy. I was on a plane when I first watched still remember holding back salts as tears streamed down your face because it seemed like the least we can do to feel tremendous sorrow in the face of such evil for the lives that have been hurt and to be provoked to a deep sense of protest. How on earth was this possible? That such evil could be swept under the rug in a foolish bid to protect the church's reputation. How could these men whose job it was to be spiritual sanctuaries for safety and health, instead abuse their position and sacrifice the innocence of the very kids that Jesus fought so hard to dignify. If you've never done it, the film sparked me to go and read <clears throat> some of the transcripts from our own Royal Commission here in Australia. Countless stories of people's lives ruined, and it happened under the umbrella of every Christian denomination. The courage of these survivors and the voice that they gave to their horrors has forever changed Australia's relationship with the church. Now personally, the extent of these evils has kicked any remnants of Christian triumphalism out of me. And for doubters, Christians behaving badly has become a serious barrier to becoming one. Why? Because you're left wondering, in the wake of all the moral fallout within Christianity, is any of it real? And if Christianity is true, then shouldn't we expect Christians to be better? So what does the Christian story say then about Christians behaving badly? Why are Christians so bad? It's a small question. Now, no doubt there are some in this room, and even some who may listen online later, for whom this is a deeply personal question. Maybe you've been hurt at the hands of Christians. And I want you to know that any attempt at some kind of response is born out of a tremendous sense of sorrow and agreeing with that deep protest of the reality of these evils. As you read through the Gospels, Jesus himself knows intimately the terrible suffering that can come at the hands of religious people. Because the ones who were meant to represent God to the pagan world were the very ones who falsely accused him, who beat him and spat upon him, and who lobbied for his brutal execution. So Jesus knows something 
of how you feel. To be mistreated, to be maligned by those who bear God's name. And at that, and sorry, and that this is at the center of the Christian story, what it reveals is that God ultimately is committed to exposing the reality of religious evil. Yeah, I guess one of the reasons why Christians behaving badly doesn't break my faith in Jesus is because far from trying to sweep all of these things under the rug, instead the Christian story constantly draws them out into the open. Whether it be the prophetic books in the Old Testament or the apostles in the New Testament, God constantly calls his people to account. As you read, nearly every letter in the New Testament was written to address a serious shortcoming, either in the beliefs or the behaviors of the early Christians. People who needed to be called out for not framing God or the gospel right in the eyes of a watching world. And that these dark deeds were dealt with publicly, memorialized for us to read about in Christian scripture, that speaks to God's commitment to drag religious evils out into the light, exposing them for the good of all. The simple truth is, there has never been a more vocal critic of religious hypocrisy than Jesus. Our text today in Matthew chapter 23 is but one occasion where Jesus took aim at religious leaders for saying one thing and doing another. For those of you who are new or exploring Christianity, these two groups that Jesus mentions, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they represented the sect of Judaism known for taking religion seriously. They were the ones who taught the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh. They were the ones who sought to avoid sin and sinners. They were careful to follow the rules, to obey the rituals. If we were alive then, man, we'd think they were the ones that had it all together. They're the shiny religious people that stand up on stages and talk to people. But look at how Jesus exposes them and calls them hypocrites. He says to do what they say, but not what they do. Why? Because they don't really care about the people they preach to. They don't lift a finger to help them. Because they do their religious deeds in public for human praise, rather than doing them in secret to connect with God. Because they want to have positions of privilege, They want to lord it over others rather than seeking and serving them humbly. Because they make sure that they follow the letter of the law in their religious observance rather than living out the intention, the spirit, the heart of the law in the pursuit of justice and mercy for those in need. Because they obscure God's invitation, the welcome that he offers for all to come to him whilst rejecting that invitation themselves. And so Jesus calls them blind. He calls them vipers, equating them with the sinister serpent in the Garden of Eden. And he calls them whitewashed tombs, which is a reference to how the Jews used to paint their graves white. You can still see it in Jerusalem today. Make it look beautiful on the outside when, in reality, there's something ugly within. Jesus said that these religious leaders were like that, claiming to have this renovated public image to the outward world which was simply masking the stench of a moral corpse inside. And so Jesus calls them hypocrites, which is a word drawn from the ancient world of acting for all of those aspiring actors in here. People who wore a mask. People who were privately one thing and then public on stage were an entire different personality. That's what it means to be a hypocrite. Publicly one thing, privately another. And when it comes to judgment in the Christian story, 
repeatedly, God starts with his own people. You see, the scriptures promise that one day everything will be exposed by Jesus. When he sits over us in judgment and the great books are opened to tell the truth about everything that has happened. You'll often hear the line in Christian circles that Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven, or that Jesus spoke more about hell than any other person in the Bible. Now, personally, I'm not convinced that either of those two things is true when you add up the references. But what is true is that Jesus did speak some very strong words, even terrifying words, when it came to describing hell. But here's the catch. Those words weren't aimed at seculars or at pagans or at notorious sinners. Jesus' strongest warnings about judgment were aimed at religious people, and especially religious leaders, who were misrepresenting God to those whom he loved. Here in Matthew 23, Jesus calls the religious leaders sons of hell. And elsewhere in Matthew 18.6, he warns these religious leaders when speaking of children that if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. It's better to be killed in such a way than to face Jesus on Judgment Day. Now these are serious words. And I raise them so that you know if you're here and you are protesting internally or publicly against the evils in the church, you might be surprised to find that you have an ally in Jesus. But Jesus wouldn't say that Christians behaving badly should stop you from becoming one. Why? Because the church exists for something beautiful. Jesus launched the church to be the epicenter of God's work in the world to be the hands and the feet of God's love, to be the carriers of the good news of the Christian story, and to play along with this sublime tune that Jesus composed with his own life and teaching of what it means to look like when you love God with all of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. And the truth is, when it comes to history, the church isn't all bad. At many times across history, when Christians have used their freedom to follow Jesus' example, the church has been beautiful and has bequeathed immeasurable goods to the world. For every story of violence or abuse, there are counter-stories of mercy and love. There are nearly a dozen books in the last decade alone which trace the riches now of our cultural inheritance, what's been noted as the best of the West back to the teaching and legacy of the Lord Jesus. You see, as the church carried his teachings, they traced that this is responsible for placing limits on secular powers, for the development of universal human rights, for education and health care for all, for women's equality, for charity and welfare, for modern science, for non-violent resistance, and even the emergence of historically unique virtues like humility. In fact, it is nearly unimaginable to consider what the world would be like today without Jesus and the influence of the church who sought to follow in his steps. As one secular historian, Tom Holland, recently put it, we in the West, we're not Greek, we're not Roman, we are thoroughly Christian, and I, for one, am glad for that. Now, none of this is an attempt to excuse the religious evils that have been done by Christians. And if you want a magisterial summary of the good, the bad, and the ugly of church history, then you would do no better than to read John Dixon's Bullies and Saints. It's a brilliant volume. 
But what I hope you would see, if you were to read the Gospels about Jesus for yourselves, is that there is impossible to draw a straight line from Jesus' life and teaching through to the evils that have been committed by those who bear his name. No. Jesus' vision for the church, it is worth believing in. Which is why this litany of sacred crimes then, although perpetrated by Christians, is in fact a betrayal of Christianity. Christians behaving badly or the dark deeds of the church, these are in open defiance to Jesus' teaching. The problem is not that they were being Christian. The problem is that they weren't being Christian enough. So to borrow another metaphor from John Dixon, it doesn't make sense to judge a sublime piece of music based on the poor performance of a novice. So if you want to know whether Jesus really was who he claimed to be, the invisible God made visible, if you want to know whether it's worth becoming a Christian, trusting him, believing what he's done for us, then please go back to the Gospels for yourselves to read through them, his life and his teaching. Because as the light of the world, you can trust Jesus. But there is still a serious challenge to be answered. Why does God allow Christians to behave badly? Why aren't Christians supernaturally different, especially considering becoming a Christian is spoken of in the scriptures as becoming a new creation or having God's spirit make you new from the inside out? And the truth is, I've lamented over this question, even when it comes to my own life. You get so excited as you read through the Gospels and into the book of Acts, which for the newcomers, it chronicles the first few decades of the early church and the early Jesus movement. You see how this strange bunch of at times morally dubious men and women are then catapulted into this life of extraordinary virtue and self-sacrifice all because of their encounters with Jesus. Of course, they're far from perfect. You even have one apostle calling out another for his serious shortcomings to follow Jesus' teaching and example. But on the aggregate, their lives were substantially changed. And the same is true of thousands of stories from across the pages of church history. From slave ship captains turned penitent pastors, humbled by amazing grace, to those who have given their lives in selfless and sacrificial service to the poor, or to leper communities, or to those who are in need, assuming all of earth's comforts in order to share the love of God. You get excited reading these stories, and it seems like in their case, Believing in Jesus thoroughly changed them. I don't know if you're anything like me, but then I look back at my own life. And so often, it's nothing to write home about. There'll be no grand stories in history. Because the truth is, in the early mornings, I can get grumpy. Or I get defensive when I feel attacked from others. Or far too often, my love for others, it just comes up short. Especially if I'm hungry and it's time for lunch. So why, after following Jesus for 18 years, half my life now, am I not more different? Well, I guess part of the reason why God allows religious evils is somewhat the same reason why God allows any evils. You see, there are a range of different Christian responses, or what they call theodicies, that try and speak to the question of why would a good God let bad things happen? 
But one that seems to speak powerfully here in this case is the notion of freedom. You see, when you become a Christian, God doesn't remove your meaningful agency. At the beginning of the Christian story, since God desired for us to have deep and meaningful relationships, to love him and love others, that required that human beings be imbued with significant moral freedom. Choice is indispensable to this experience. And since God's end game then at the end in the book of Revelation required that we be transformed to become wise, moral agents who will rule and reign in the new creation alongside Jesus, well, that future too depends on our free participation towards us submitting our own will to God's good design, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling as we mature to become who God created us to be, all with his help by the Spirit. So God cannot remove our freedom and still achieve those grand ends, even if it would circumvent religious evils in the meantime. And this reality is why I don't see bad Christians as evidence against Christianity. In fact, in a tragic way, Christians behaving badly ends up being a kind of soft evidence for the truth of the Christian story. Because it gives testimony to one of the central claims of the Scripture that having been created for good in God's image, all of us now are damaged by evil. We all fall short of God's good design. Which is why evil, it's not a uniquely Christian problem. It's a universally human problem. And the shadow of dark deeds doesn't just hang over the history of the church. It looms large over all of human history. And this is why the gospel, it really is good news, even for bad Christians like me. Because Christianity is not about being a good person. Encountering Jesus should result in a changed life, especially as we partner with God in becoming again who we were created to be. But please hear me on this clearly. Being good enough for God is no gospel. The good news is not that God loves good people. It's that God loves bad people. Where through the cross and empty tomb, Jesus deals with the evil that holds us captive, condemning all of it while securing forgiveness to all who believe. And what that means is right now, the church is going to be messy. As you look to your left, as you look to your right, This is no showroom for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. It's full of messy, broken people who have found forgiveness in Jesus and on the road to recovery. Tragically, some will forsake that road entirely. We'll use religion merely as a cover to do evil. But most, I'm guessing, people like me, we lament over whatever our shortcomings do especially when they inadvertently hurt those around us. And we're faithfully trying to follow Jesus, repenting whenever we mess up. Now, I know that some people today, or listening to this right now, have been hurt deeply by religious people. And I'm genuinely sorry at that reality. I wish I could go back across the last 2,000 years of history and undo everything that's been done, including what you've had to experience. But you are not alone in your pain. 
Jesus knows intimately how you feel to be betrayed by the dark actions of a religious establishment. And as the one who will hold Christians to account, and as the one whose protest against religious evils and hypocrisy rings loudest, I want to encourage you that you can trust him. Jesus is not done with the church. And as broken as she can sometimes seem, Jesus loves the church. And he's committed to making her beautiful and this beacon of hope to the world. He's committed to helping her become who he created her to be. That as together you grow as a body of Christians, you might embody that beautiful vision that he set out for his church. You see, in the words of C.S. Lewis, God's love is inconvenient. It's big enough to love us and accept us as we are. But it's too great, too inconvenient to leave us as we are. And if you're here with your hurts, that's where your protest matters. Against bad Christians, against the dark deeds of the church, your protest matters to God. Because like with the open record of the scriptures, God is committed to bringing all of it out into the light. So that the harm that has been done might lead to repentance, to a seeking of reconciliation, perhaps restitution, healing, to whatever degree is possible. And if the Christian story is true, then the church's future, man, it really is something worth believing in. Now, some of you here will know that this message is one that, for me, cuts deep. Someone I once looked up to in the faith, someone I considered to be a spiritual father to me, turned out to have a dark side that no one saw coming. Now, we all have our own shadows, one we try to hide from others for the fear of rejection, but his was something else entirely. It was scandalous. And when the truth came out after his death, I mourned. I mourned for the people that he had hurt. I was devastated for the family and the ministry that I loved that was torn apart in the aftermath. I lamented how the witness of the gospel was brought into disrepute. And I mourned the loss of a spiritual father who had tried to hide in the dark what should have been repented from in the light. And through that whole experience, though, Far from making me run away from Jesus, many run towards him. You see, when we get exposed to the full-blown darkness in some people, or even look at those nascent seeds within our own heart, you come to see just how different Jesus really is. This singular life of unique moral caliber, the sinless Savior, the light of the world in whom there is no shadow, no darkness, none, and about whom in the future no dark revelation will ever be unearthed. If there is one person in this world you can trust, you can trust Jesus. So friends, if you're a newcomer who has kept Christianity at arm's length because of the shortcomings of Christians, or if you're a Christian who is limping along because you've been hurt, 
by those you once trusted. And please, look to Jesus. Read the Gospels with open eyes. And may from him you take courage in his voice. May you experience the compassion of his love. May you find truth in his words. May you experience life as you encounter him for yourself. And may you drink deep of the rich promises of a good gospel, even for bad people. Why don't you just bow your heads with me? I want to offer a prayer. And I ask that God may rush in where each of us has that need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that nothing is hidden from your sight. That you search us and know us. And as the source of all that is good, the source of all that is true, that you are committed to driving out into the open all darkness that in the light of who you are, it might be dealt with. Lord, I want to pray for those who need comfort and healing, that you will draw them to the wounds of Jesus, the one who condemns evil while opening a door, healing for forgiveness for a future, the one whose scars are real, and that his wounds can speak to our own. Lord, I want to pray for a church of messy, broken people who are trying their best to follow Jesus. That you would have us lead in humility and repentance for the ways that we fall short. That we wouldn't be hypocrites pretending to be one thing publicly, most privately something else. We need the good gospel of grace. And I pray that you would bring reconciliation amongst friends where things have been done to hurt and bring distance. Lord, may you pour into there and bring change. And I ask too that by the filling of your spirit and the commitment of your people to lay down our own wills to serve yours, that as we grow with Jesus, become again who you made us to be, that we might lead the future of a different kind of church. One that is humble and broken but beautiful, in the way that we get these small glimpses of what amazing grace can do. For those who need you, would you draw them close? And I pray for those who are struggling to believe that you would make Jesus big in their minds. They might come to see how wonderful is this sinless Savior in whom there is no shadow. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.